Our gospel reading this day comes from the gospel according to St. Matthew. It's found in the 10th chapter and it begins at the 26th verse where Jesus said, Have no fear of those who would hand you over for trial, for nothing is covered up that will not be uncovered and nothing secret that will not become known. What I say to you in the dark, tell in the light. What you hear whispered, proclaim from the rooftops. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground unperceived by your father. And even the hairs of your head are all counted. So do not be afraid. You are of more value than many sparrows. Everyone, therefore, who acknowledges me before others, I also will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others, I also will deny before my Father in heaven. This, too, is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, indeed. Excuse me just a moment. Sorry about that. I've been um, asked to stand in places like this in front of congregations for a long time, longer than I'm going to admit this morning. But for a vast majority of what's become my preaching career, and for every Sunday of that time prior to my arrival at Faith Lutheran Church, The Bible texts that were presented in worship were ones that were drawn from something called the Revised Common Lectionary. That's a three-year cycle that's repeated over and over again of Bible lessons that come in a cycle. It doesn't cover the whole Bible, it covers an awful lot of it, but there's a, a definite pattern to it. So if you're somebody like me who maintains a computer and you've got a database, You've got all your sermons going back hmm, so many years, right? And you have all those charts of the lectionary and what it's done. There's been some subtle changes over the decades, but for the most part, it's remained the same. And I can look back. And one of the things that I found is that um, the sixth chapter of Daniel, the story of Daniel in the lion's den, has never been in the lectionary. It's not regularly touched on at all. And thus... My, li- my library of past sermons has nothing to say, right? So Pastor Watts assigned the reading of Daniel 6 for this day quite some weeks ago when he established the series that was going to come, and that was long before the series started. So I've been thinking about this Daniel and the lion's den story for quite a while. But part of that was going back and trying to reach in my memory to find out when I'd heard it ever discussed or when it was ever something that was important that we paid attention to in in my church life. And even in seminary, it just never came up. So what I was left with was, well, my mother's teaching on felt boards when I was a little kid in Sunday school class, and one incident that happened in another place. It was at a church where I was... mm, being taught and helping out at the same time during my first year of seminary. It was a place that wasn't part of the seminary's curriculum. I had just found a mentor in the local area, 
And uh, it was at a place called St. John's Lutheran Church in Littlestown, Pennsylvania. It is its name. It's a wonderful place. And St. John's is older than the country is. It's such a wonderful place. But that was the place where I had my one and only experience with this Bible story. And for me, it was traumatic. And my daughter sitting back there just scrunched up her face. She has a different reaction. So I'll tell you about it. At that congregation one day, the pastor's wife, whose name was Liz Kiley, she was the choir director. And she came up to me one, uh, one Sunday and she says, as you know, we have a, a bell choir with children and they're going to be playing next Sunday. So I'd like to ask you, Mark, if you wouldn't mind helping out with their presentation. I was eager and new in that congregation and really naive when it came, comes to the Kileys. And so I said, sure, I'll do that. And so when I arrived on the appointed Sunday, after I put on my alb, because in that church it was a very formal thing to lead worship, and you put on the white robes every single week, Liz explained to me that her little kid's bell choir would be telling the story of Daniel and the lion's den. But their musical piece would tell the story from the point of view of the lions. Hmm. So she further explained each of the children would play a handbell, and that handbell would be the part of one of many lion cubs that were in the den. It would be my job to portray the mama lion and to provide narration throughout the piece. Now things get worse from there. That's where the trauma starts. See, So dressed in my alb, Minutes before worship, she then explains to me that I must be also dressed as Mama Lion. So out comes this big flowery apron that was tied around my waist and this big goofy bonnet that was put upon my head. Then the makeup. The pastor had to watch that and laugh at me as it went, complete with the big whiskers and everything else. They made me up like something on, out of cats on Broadway. And then I was given this huge stainless steel bowl and a great big wooden um, stirring spoon. And I was to carry those out in front of the congregation. The bowl had actually a function. It was to um, hide the fact that my script was inside the bowl and I could be reading it at the appropriate parts in the musical uh, presentation. And together, the bowl and the spoon would give the illusion that my cubs and I were looking forward to a really nice meal. Traumatic. And, yes, my most vivid memory of Daniel and the lion's den. I have to confess, you know, it, coupled with my mother's Sunday school lessons, those, that day and those lessons truly colored my understanding of this beloved Bible study or Bible story. Many of you probably, if you have grandkids, have those, those books on the shelf in your homes or, you know, along with Noah's Ark and, and all the rest that we truly love. Perhaps what you learned about Daniel in the lion's den long ago was similar to what I learned. Daniel, we were taught, demonstrates the necessity to trust God, especially when times are difficult, right? And that's, that's an integral part of, of this lion's den story. And it also teaches us that God protects those who are faithful, faithful to God's teachings. And I believe both of those things are very true. 
and good lessons for our kids in those little books and good lessons for me in the days gone by. But this morning, because I'm an oddball, I guess, in my preaching, I'm going to go a different direction. I'm going to dig a different hole, if you will. So buckle up. Buckle up. Today, I'm going to make the case that this story that we've known since we were little children is intensely political. Through and through. Here's the background. Prior to our reading this morning, the book of Daniel tells us that Belshazzar, the corrupt Babylonian king who Pastor Watts preached about last week, had been killed. Babylon, his, his uh, kingdom, had been overrun and squashed. It was replaced by the Medes. And Darius, king of the Medes, was the new king in the land. Darius was confronted with a new land and the entire existing political structure that was there under Belshazzar had been wiped out. So he had to build a whole new political structure for the country from scratch. So we're told he appointed a number of satraps or governors over the country and and other officials of varying levels, sort of a pyramid of, of people to govern the land. He also, at the top of that pyramid, appointed three supervisors to be over the whole pyramid, except for himself, of course. And one of those three supervisors he chose happens to be Daniel. Now consider, what's the likelihood of that? Here's Daniel, a Hebrew, excuse me, a Hebrew who had served the Babylonians. The Babylonians had been squashed. And, and so what rightly new king would come in and choose some of the Babylonian infrastructure to be his own? That's a risky thing to do for a king because those people may have retribution. So it's amazing that Daniel is picked in this place, a foreigner to make it even more, more uh, uh, unlikely. Why this happened, why Daniel was put in this lofty position by the king of the Medes, we're not told. I will assume that God was at work through Daniel's abilities and through his personal gifts. Whatever. It also came to be that Daniel was elevated to, among the three supervisors, be the most distinguished of the three. And my version of the Bible tells me that, was, that happened because Daniel had extraordinary spirit. God just exuded from him. And even this king of the Medes, a pagan, came to recognize that. Now, what always happens in a political structure if all the insiders are bypassed by an outsider and the outsider is made their boss? What always happens? Well, the polite word, and we'll use that word in church, right? The polite word is jealousy. So jealousy arose among the satraps and the supervisors. That's always the way of politics. Daniel's fellow leaders tried it their hardest. They tried hard to find some way to prove that Daniel was not trustworthy. They tried to prove that he was somehow guilty of negligence or corruption. You might say that they were seeking to indict Daniel but all of their efforts utterly failed so they sought to find a way to catch Daniel in some offense that was connected to Daniel's God what's a bunch of politicians to do I ask when they want to rid themselves of a worthy rival well 
all those thousands of years ago, they drummed up a new temporary law. It was a temporary law that would be in place for only 30 days. A law which said that no person may offer any prayer, unless, of course, those prayers were to King Darius. And they went to the king with this law. They buttered him up. And in his vanity, King Darius agreed to sign this temporary law. Moreover, the new decree said any person who was to commit such an offense by praying would be thrown into a pit filled with hungry lions. Daniel learned of this new law. How could he not? He was basically like Joseph had been in Egypt long before. He was number two in the hierarchy. So he learned of the law, but nevertheless, he continued in his Hebrew pattern of three times a day prayer. Each one of those three times, he went into his private rooms and he fell to his knees. And there were open windows. Yes, they faced Jerusalem, but others can look in the windows too, right? Well, Daniel was then caught breaking that law and he was brought before the king. He had been praying. So Darius had two choices. He could follow the law he had issued and sacrifice Daniel's life. But in so doing, he would save himself the embarrassment of being labeled a hypocrite. Or he could contradict his own order, rescind his law and save Daniel. But in so doing, weaken his power and his hold on his newly formed kingdom. To his credit, Darius tried to find out of the way, a way out of the trap at first, but then, then he succumbed to the political pressure which had entrapped both he and Daniel. Sadly, King Darius ordered Daniel thrown into the pit of ravenous lions according to the new law signed by his very own hand. You see, that's the stuff nobody taught me on the felt board when my mom was in charge of the class when I was a kid. And you know, none of that came up when I was dressed like Mama Lion either. Perhaps you, like me, missed out on some of those details earlier in your life with this story. So there we are. We're at the more familiar part of the story. Daniel's in the lion's den. Did you notice how they closed the den up? Did you notice that? There was a, it, the den was basically a hole in the ground with a, you know, a mouth at the top of it. And so they took a large stone and placed it over that mouth, over the entryway to the den. And then that stone over the hole was sealed using an imprint of King Darius's ring, his signet ring, and that of his lord's, which is how they did things in ancient times. The ring was pushed into a wax-like subject, uh, substance, to make it look as, as, as fresh as possible. And then evidence would be known if somebody came out or if somebody went in. But is that process, that stone and those seals, does that sound familiar to anybody? Have you heard that anywhere else in the Bible? Isn't that the same procedure that Pilate used to seal Jesus into his tomb? Christ would rise from what was supposed to be his grave by the power of God, and we are given a very strong signal that the same would happen in Daniel's case. Or do I have it the wrong way around historically? Or does it matter? Doesn't the Bible inform the Bible? Anyway, just as would be the case in Jerusalem many years later, 
in words reminiscent of the description of the women who came to Jesus' tomb, Daniel was found by King Darius to be alive and safe in the morning, just as the women found Jesus outside the tomb on that Sunday morning. Daniel also testified that an angel from God had come in the night to shut the mouths of the lions. And we remember the angel found at Christ's tomb as he rose too. King Darius was relieved because his right-hand man was now alive and well, and his own political reputation remained untarnished. All he did was miss a night's sleep and a good meal. And the political actors who'd cooked up the whole scheme were as nervous as they could be, and for good reason. They were then fed to the lions in retribution for their own actions. And then, in the other half of verse 24, which I didn't ask Dom to read, they didn't fare so well in the lion's den, not near as well as Daniel did. Again, there's quite a bit there that I didn't learn when I was a kid, or from that bell choir narration. And I suspect that there may have been one little fact as I went through all of that, and as Dom read the the text for us today, that caught your attention. It was that part where King Darius was tricked into decreeing that the prohibition against praying was to be, well, a temporary 30-day period. Anybody here heard something like that before? Recently, maybe? As Kohelet wisely writes in Ecclesiastes, there is nothing new under the sun. As we've been discussing these now six weeks, Daniel lived in a secular society, one with many different religions and peoples all in the same proximity. He himself was a Jew in exile when he began to live and work in a land ruled by Babylon. When the Medes took over, Daniel, as you've learned, was appointed to be an official under this new king. So with all that life behind him, with all that secular stuff swirling around him, and under the circumstances, what would it have hurt Daniel if he had just not prayed for 30 days? Just let it go. Take a break. It's only 30 measly days. How would that have hurt Daniel in any way? We ask ourselves, what was the big deal and why did it mean so much to him to be in prayer with God three times every day that he couldn't let it go for a month? I'll let that hang there for a while. We clearly also live in secular times. Not exactly like Daniel, but the the mix is somewhat similar. As Daniel was one of the few Hebrews living in those foreign societies, practicing Christians today comprise well under half of the American population. It's actually around 38, 39%. Sad. But this country has many other religions with which we share a national life. We're in this secular mix. And then, surprisingly, there is the largest religious group in the country in recent years. It's called the nuns. Everybody know the nuns? If you don't, it's those who fill out their census forms with none of the above 
when asked about their religious affiliation. The nuns are the majority in this country now. In such an environment, is it possible that a secular political leader might require people to suspend praying or any of our other worship rites or sacraments for eh, a brief period of time? Is that possible? If you aren't sure about your answer, just turn on your Wayback Machine just a couple clicks to two or three years ago, right? Remember where we were then as people of God. We were told at various times not to gather at all. We were told not to be in contact with others. We were told not to offer sacraments. It would bring us too much in contact with one another and too close of proximity. And there was even a government edict not to sing at one point, sing our praises to God. There were government sanctions put in place as well, both for the individual and for the churches. Thankfully, among those sanctions, lions were not included. It's not been that long ago. We all remember. Those times were confusing and they were difficult for all of us. We ask questions like, how are we to discern how to satisfy the needs of our society, our personal safety, and the needs of our church community? How do we do those three? If all of those three aren't possible, how then do we decide between them? And we had to wrestle mightily through that. Today I ask, what does the sixth chapter of Daniel teach in this regard? Well, whether you are someone who believes the Daniel and the lion's den story to be a parable or to be actual history, the one thing that we can agree upon is that the story is clearly scriptural. All scripture is given by God and is useful for our instruction. So what we find in the story is that Daniel is faithful to the Lord God above everything and all else. He is faithful to that degree even in the face of his own death by a horrible execution. Daniel's relationship with the Lord, built at least in part through his three times a day prayers, would not be denied and it would not be thwarted by any earthly power. That's the central lesson of Daniel. As powerful as that is, Jesus in our gospel lesson teaches with words that are even more forceful, more forceful than the example shown to us in Daniel's sixth chapter. Christ tells you to have no fear, no fear of those who would hand you over for trial, no fear for those who would kill the body but cannot harm your soul. There is no reason to fear such things because you, every one of you, me too, we are all of surpassing value to the Father. And then having said that, Jesus comes to us with language that is even more plain. He says, everyone who acknowledges me before others, I also will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others, I will also deny before my Father in heaven. Daniel knew of what Jesus speaks here. When commanded by the king he served to refrain from praying for 30 days, he did not make a show of his opposition. 
But it is clear that Daniel's commitment to the Lord far exceeded any demand made by the secular leadership of his time. I began by saying that this would be a political sermon. And it is. Politics requires the application of loyalty. And so, brothers and sisters, it is now time to make your commitment to the one you serve. A choice is demanded. Jesus makes that clear. Christ is the ultimate judge of our existence, and he is watching to see where our loyalties, each one of us, where those loyalties lie. So do you acknowledge him before others? Do you praise his name in all you say and do? Or do you deny him for the sake of your own comfort and or your own safety? You say it differently. To whom do you pledge your allegiance? Do you say the words of the creed, as we will in a few moments, but... Having, leaving, having left this room later in the day, do you live your life then for the betterment of others in the way of Jesus Christ and do so outside this room? That is, do you say one thing and do the other or are both consistent inside and outside? Is your pledge of allegiance lived out according to your words and the call of our Lord and Savior? Only your examination of your heart will tell. Bluntly, when threatened by the proverbial lions out there in the secular world, shall we, people of God, succumb to the world's demands by denying Christ and thereby risking being denied by Christ before our Father in heaven? On the other hand, shall we acknowledge and proclaim the Lion of Judah to those who would hear wherever we meet them? The direction of Scripture, Old Testament and New, is clear, and I commend it to you. Like Daniel, as he trusted the Lord with his very life, may we all be saved from the lions of this world by the grace of of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.